This podcast is coming to you from the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. Today, we're talking about fans of speculative fiction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phanthropological. My name is Nick G, and today we're going to be exploring the world of speculative fiction. Here with me to discuss that are my two best friends, Nick T. Uh, I am on a literally genre-defying podcast. That's the best I've got. <laughs> and Nick Z. I, I am so busy speculating about what my answer can be. That that speculation has become my answer. Three out of five. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also joining us today, our special guest, author of Undead Redhead and the Blood Magic series, we have Jen Frankel. Jen, thank you for joining us. Hello. I love speculative fiction. I like it because if it's not quite real, I believe in it utterly. It's <laughs> a good way to be. <laughs> What I like about it is that it's easy to say is our, our podcast name. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to get ahead, choose a six-syllable word to be your title. <laughs> I'm going to give us a little bit of a grounding because I have a feeling that this podcast is going to be a little bit less grounded than normal. <laughs> what? Uh, really? Because I've yeah. heard some... <laughs> <laughs> and just give a little bit of background on some definitions of speculative fiction, but maybe there isn't one. That's all encompassing. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Facts. I have a quote here from uh, an article called Defining Speculative Fiction from the DIY MFA. MFA is a Master's of Fine Arts, I believe. And it says, Judith Merrill, Canadian author, editor, and activist, defined speculative fiction in 1966 as stories whose objective is to explore, to discover, to learn. By means of projection, extrapolation, analog, hypothesis, and paper experimentation, something about the nature of the universe, of man, or reality. But also Wikipedia has other definitions, like speculative fiction is an umbrella genre encompassing narrative fiction with supernatural or futuristic elements. This includes, but is not limited to, science fiction, fantasy, superhero fiction, science fantasy, horror, utopian, and dystopian fiction, supernatural fiction, as well as combinations thereof. So... Who knows? That's a lot of different things. Uh, in its English language usage in arts and literature, it's been used since the mid-20th century. As a genre, it is often attributed to have been coined by Robert A. Heinlein way back in 1947. Although Heinlein, or Heinlein, I'm really bad at pronouncing famous authors' names. I would say Heinlein. Heinlein That's right? what I've been saying in my life. <laughs> Asimov wouldn't approve of <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, used it as a synonym for science fiction and specifically later on said that it didn't apply to fantasy. Uh, however, in the 2000s, and this is probably where Jen comes in with lots more expertise than my Wikipedia diving. <laughs> in the 2000s, the term came into wider use as a convenient collective term for a set of genres. However, some writers such as Margaret Atwood continue to distinguish speculative fiction specifically as a no Martians type of science fiction about things that could really happen. Hmm. Okay. So, Jen, how much of what I said is completely and utterly not true? I haven't read Oryx and Crake, but I kind of got the impression that that was 
maybe going outside of Margaret Atwood's own definition of what speculative fiction is. I could be wrong about that, because as I say, I haven't read it. Those are all very good definitions. <laughs> I think I was saying before that, that um, the main definition that, that always bothers me is when you have either speculative fiction or literature. And that's the distinction that some people like to make, that it's either good work or it's, you know, speculative fiction. So that anything that's a genre is automatically a lesser kind of work. And only if you actually achieve the status of a Margaret Atwood with your other work do you get to write speculative fiction that's also considered to be literature. Hmm. And that's that kind of awkwardness I think we were talking a little bit about before the shows that uh, that there is... Um, uh, you know what? I don't want to go down that road because you guys understand fandom and you guys understand exactly what happens when people <laughs> don't appreciate the things that you appreciate despite the fact that you know they're awesome. Z, is there a possibility you might have anything about people thinking that genre fiction is a little less than literature? Is there <laughs> <laughs> just a wild guess? Man. I mean, it's it's something that I've kind of moved beyond, but like, yes, in university, I was very much no, of a mind. We're, we're pulling you back. <laughs> pulling me, you pulled me a little bit back. In university, I was very much about, you know, why isn't like stuff like fantasy and science fiction considered to be more literary when it's tackling similar issues? You know, I'm going to sit down and write a literary fantasy. <gasps> and uh, I mean, maybe <laughs> <laughs> it's, I guess, still in the works. <laughs> Maybe it's all a matter of style. I've got a literary style. I don't, I don't know. Well, it's funny, though, because like a lot of stuff that we've come to think of as canon was pop literature of its time. Like mm -hmm. Dickens was a popular writer oh, yeah. that people liked reading and wasn't considered particularly accomplished by the wags of the era. <laughs> so I think a lot of what we're going to see is, is what actually survives. Like, I think mm -hmm. that when you look at some of the really great speculative fiction and science fiction. And when you look at some of the masters, like Heinlein, I think it is Heinlein. I'll go with your pronunciation so that at least we nail it for, for, the, for the episode. We're all in this um, together. But, you know, like, I think that Ursula Le Guin's going to last forever. And I think mm -hmm. that Arthur C. Clarke is going to last forever. And I think people are always going to come back to Asimov and other amazing writers and, and realize that there's a humanism that elevates them to the, that status of literature. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of what reading is, period, is personal taste. So if you want something that's fun and garbagey and full of lots of sex <laughs> and swordplay, you can find it in historical romance, you can find it in literature, and you can find it in mm -hmm. speculative fiction. If you want something that goes a little deeper, you can find that in all those genres as well. Yeah. This is a great opportunity for me to pull a quote out that actually... Ooh. had in my head partially and then I looked up and mm. found out the actual quote but from Kurt Vonnegut one of my absolute Gee. favorite authors mm. I have been a sore-headed occupant of a file drawer labeled science fiction and I would like out particularly since so many serious critics regularly mistake the drawer for a urinal mm. <laughs> <laughs> perfect <laughs> that is awesome I gotta say between Vonnegut and Bradbury I think some of the best quotes on on exactly <laughs> straight fire from those guys <laughs> <laughs> there was some kind of bradbury thing about how you should write um, a story every week because at the end of the year you'll have 52 stories and all of them can't be crap hey that's pretty good i like that yeah yeah <laughs> kind of appreciate that i think i had that quote now i don't i must have thrown it away but 
Yeah, it's funny to be writing something that a broader community that you also respect, like, you know, the literary community, actually deems trashy. <laughs> that um, that no matter how, how good you write, you're always a second-class citizen. You're, you're never that good a writer because of your chosen subject matter. And that's something that I feel very passionately about. I love speculative fiction because not only does it allow you to play with magic and science and the extremes of human experience, but it lets you actually approach human issues head on, like very difficult human emotional issues and interactions in an allegorical fashion. So you can actually get people talking about something they don't even realize you're doing by sneaking it in as a piece of magic or as a conceit. When we look at great science fiction, we're usually delving into something like human xenophobia or fear of the unknown. There's so many great issues that you can deal with on a huge scale if you're just willing to, to step back and pretend there's something else. And then later people are walking through the library and they go, wait a, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. like a bell goes off. <laughs> the troubles represented my rabbits. <laughs> oh, no, I, that's, that's probably not so much that. Before anyone gets any further, I do want to address something that's in the chat. Chase Base 2 says, play Fortnite, old farts, to which I say, no. <laughs> oh, boy. Coming back to some of the, the factual data that I managed to pull up, I was looking into the Google Trends data for speculative fiction, and unsurprisingly, it has gotten to be a lot more popular since 2004, which is about as far back as Google Trends data goes. I compared it with fantasy as a genre, and interestingly enough, fantasy is way more popular, but it's declining in interest over time. Oh. Hmm. what was unsurprising but still interesting is that speculative fiction is on the rise like sometime around 2008 interest picked up a lot and it continued to kind of go up until about 2015 where it's been about the same every year it follows this weird periodic pattern where in january there's a ton of interest and then by december it's dropped off and then it's back and forth and back and forth hmm. i don't know why that is <laughs> people make a new year's resolution <laughs> like with the gym yeah, yeah. I'm gonna read Morris. I'm gonna read. <laughs> hey, Goodreads has that reading challenge. That's true. Say so you're gonna read 50 books in a year. I'm gonna read more stories about how the world is terrible. <laughs> That's what I set out to do. And then you get through the year and you're like, oh man, these stories are too real. I need to I need to watch some news to come down. Or That's like that. dangerous right now. Actually, uh, yeah. I don't know if you guys uh, if I would have told you guys, but. Uh, the last big piece I worked on was for Dark Heel Express. Uh, it's a speculative fiction anthology. Ooh. 33 writers from all over the world. It's called Trump, Utopia, or Dystopia. We asked people to actually imagine the world under Trump. And Whoa. yeah, that could fill both of those, like watching the news and reading speculative fiction. That like It ticks both boxes. <laughs> and that efficiency, I'm sure, would appeal to oh. everybody. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great story called A Brief Detour to Oz about Dorothy going to Oz and meeting Trump behind the curtain wearing a Make Oz Great Again hat. <laughs> <laughs> Some of this stuff is really funny. And, and we find out that the reason that he's building the wall is to keep the zombies out. Okay. But no one believe him, so yeah. Gotta get it all in there. Yeah. Hmm. 
So um, in terms of speculative fiction that you guys like, what do you gravitate to when it comes to extra normal activity between the pages? Um, I mentioned this off air, but Infinite Jest. <laughs> it took me more than a year to get through, but it like blew my mind pretty consistently as I did, which is definitely like, it's not entirely different from how things are now, but like certainly diverged at some point and they have like it was like 97 and they had like working like video phones and we have quebec terrorizing the united states <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> sponsored time is it yes instead of you know 1997 it was the year of the whopper and things mm-hmm. like that <laughs> i would love to see an army of bonums going across the border <laughs> into, into maine <laughs> That would be exciting. I don't want to give away the whole book. There's a lot of books to not give away. So I'm going to be fine. But one of their their acts that they pulled was on a on a big highway. They just put a giant mirror. <laughs> so like <laughs> like they were gonna to each other and they skidded off the road. So you mean like 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 Roadrunner and Coyote style, basically? Yeah. Yeah. So just like like they were about to hit themselves. Nice. I know you can fool gorillas that way. Huh. I did not know you could fool cars that way. <laughs> I'm very impressed. I'm actually writing a speculative fiction piece right now for a new Canadian speculative fiction anthology. Apparently, when they were doing the Trump book, they got about 10 to 1 submissions for that over the Canadian one. Because hmm. I keep saying when people think about Canada in the future, what they think is like, okay, Canada in 150 years, yeah. Tim Hortons will be around. We play hockey. It's uh, <laughs> like probably, probably gonna be much the same. Maybe a little better. Like no dire predictions. It's just <laughs> like, so it's like yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. It's like we'll keep doing it. Yeah. It didn't feel as urgent, perhaps. <laughs> no, people didn't get nearly as caught up in the emotion of it as they did with with Trump. Somehow. <laughs> That was, that was the thing that I asked uh, last week, actually, in our famous last weeks. Mm. And I hadn't read it. I just also thought this, that it was more Margaret Atwood's definition, mm. like the no Martians, but that it's just like speculative fiction is like we start from now, but go in a slightly different direction. And my question was like, is speculative fiction largely meant to be cautionary? That's an interesting question. Yeah. Like, look what we could become kind of thing. Yeah. I like to think that books actually present you something about the writer's philosophy that they present something about the writer's mind and the writer hopefully has something to say that is illuminating like i read books to learn something and that's always a complaint like no matter how good or bad a, a piece of speculative fiction is if i get to the end of it and i realize that my expectations have just been met but not exceeded that i i'm not i haven't learned anything new i haven't gone anywhere different it makes me kind of sad, and I don't feel like I've gotten the full experience out of it. Mm. I don't expect every piece of work to be absolutely transformatory, but I like to know that I'm that I'm learning something more about humanity, and there is there is that humanism that informs a lot of speculative fiction. I think my zombie book actually is about a very nice girl who dies in a terrible, tragic wedding bouquet toss accident. <laughs> oh no. And comes back to life uh, still ginger, just so you know, still like vegan and also a zombie. So 
and the book is basically a I guess you could say it's an allegory it's about a it's about a girl finally getting to live for the first time because now that she's dead there's no expectations <laughs> on her oh I love it yeah. Yeah. and that's saying a lot right there right? <laughs> yeah yep <laughs> now that you're dead a lot of the expectations are <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> yeah no one's gonna be like after you oh is that when are you gonna get married and have children you really want to <laughs> No, none of that it's just like are you going to eat us when you come to dinner mm -hmm. and will it be easier to have you over now that you're dead or are you still a vegan <laughs> bar's a lot lower <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so I, I love that when when uh when you can kind of pin down what an author over time i think you can really pin down what an author's values are and what not author's ethics are and and what an author is discovering in their own life. And um, it's one of the reasons that I really enjoy Stephen King, because I've seen an evolution in his both his writing style and in the depth of what he wants to talk about. And it's why I'm, um, can't believe I'm going to admit this. Oh, God, this is painful. Um, I'm not a fan of Neil Gaiman. He's not a fan of your show. Does he watch your oh, show? I'm gonna... if, if he does, then thank you, Neil. And... I'm... Don't worry about this one. I'm I, guess, I guess you won't be watching anymore. There's lightning so. <laughs> like we've had, we've had some serious rain today, and I'm just <sighs> thinking, like, if there's a moment when I get struck by lightning, it is right now. You know, it's Neil behind it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I've been expecting this a long time, actually. I, I, every time I talk about Margaret Atwood and the comma splices, I feel the same way. <laughs> But I, I think it would be just like an electrical jolt through the keyboard or something. I don't think she goes full on thunderbolts or lightning bolts. Just let you know that she's yeah. aware of what you've said. Yep. I hope so. <laughs> you, might, you mind explaining a little bit why? Mm -hmm. Like, he's not one of my, like, darlings <laughs> or anything like that. No. Oh, I was working in comic books when, uh, when Sandman had just come out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love the Sandman series. And it was innovative and it was beautiful and it had a lot of layers of character and and emotion and and if fun i mean it took it did one of the things that i love about speculative fiction where you actually take actual legends and strip them down to their archetypes and find new ways to go about telling those stories and i know he used a lot of characters that have been invented before but the characters he came up with were fantastic it was also what i think was his most mature work <laughs> okay and Almost everything after that has dealt with children that are way too wise for their own goods, <laughs> but also never get anywhere in the course of the story. Hmm. Most of the kids come to the realization that they can't count on adults, and that makes the world a crappy place. That's usually what I get out of it. And then the end. <laughs> yeah, and, and most of his adults are grown-up babies who don't even try <sighs> to do worthwhile things. I'm getting some flashbacks to Wes Anderson. <laughs> Hey, hey. Leave and, Wes Anderson alone. Leave yeah. Wes Anderson and his grown-up babies alone. Actually, I, hmm? I hate to say it, but I feel kind of the same way about Wes Anderson. Oh, no. Most of the romances, I feel just so dirty watching his romances. I just feel like, I feel like a pedophile. Like, even if it's adults, I feel like a pedophile uh. watching his romances. Oh, so I just gotta... Oh, my goodness. I'm actually getting more followers on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's actually related to it. Because of your game and bashing, I assume. <laughs> yeah, Wes Anderson is my favorite director, to be quite honest, but I will admit, none of his characters are grown up. <laughs> One of my fiance's favorite phrase is, I will go forward with the confidence of a white guy in a Wes Anderson movie. 
think watching the ev- everything wrong with Wes Anderson movies kind of solidified everything for me and, and uh, just... It's funny because one of the reasons that I loved Robertson Davies growing up Why? and one of the reasons that I really still love Isaac Asimov is that I listen to the people talking to each other and they do sound like people, but they sound like really smart, interesting people I would like to spend time with. Mm. And Wes Anderson's people usually sound like frustrating, immature people that I want to beat up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they all sound like Wes Anderson ah. and the girls that Wes Anderson never was allowed to kiss until he could actually pay them to come and kiss him. Oof. That all tracks. Yep. Yeah. But see, it's just, <laughs> it's not that that's bad. It's just, it's no. not my taste. Mm. Yeah. So I'm. It, it's like with Neil Gaiman too. I'm totally prepared to allow everybody who loves Neil Gaiman to love Neil Gaiman, because it is a lot of people's taste in storytelling. He creates characters that people want to see again, and he introduces a lot of people to mythos, and he crosses genres effortlessly. So he's always introducing people to a different brand of speculative fiction. I think he makes people who aren't very aware of other authors think that he invented all of those kinds of speculative fiction right and i think that that's that's it's not problematic it's just that most of the people that i know they're real readers love to go much deeper than that and they love to go further and they they jump off neil gaiman and find other writers i was wondering jen so i have a feeling the answer to this question isn't neil gaiman (laughs) but what got you into speculative fiction in the first place probably uh fairy tales. That was my classic literature when I was little. I grew up on, on fairy tales. I grew up on uh, Narnia, on uh, the Wizard of Oz books, of which there are 14, and they're all very good. I grew up on uh, the television I watched. I mean, my favorite hour of television was Dr. Snuggles. Don't know if you would have any concept of what i'm talking about but it was, I, um, i've heard the theme not, song but i i don't know anything <laughs> else. peter yeah peter Ustinov did the voice for this uh for this mm-hmm. tvo cartoon um yeah <laughs> dr snuggles friend of the animal world yeah. I, I, I don't ask okay uh so yeah he was like um he's a an inventor who had a house that was sentient and like just it was great stuff. I, I never kind of was one of those kids who just, you know, took for granted that a house can talk. And then when <laughs> houses don't talk anymore, I took that for granted. I was, I, I loved the fact the house could talk. I loved the fact that, you know, the mannequin in this story comes to life. And the other half hour part of that, the reason I watched Dr. Snuggles was because after that was, was Dr. Who. Hey. And that was so exciting. And I started reading science fiction very quickly after that. And, and I just plowed through the Foundation series. I wrote a letter to Isaac Asimov when he was still alive, actually. Oh, wow. And he sent me a postcard back. Oh, neat. Which was really cool. It's the fairy tales, though. It's the knowing that you can find out so much about a character if you put them in an extreme situation. I mean, it's one of the things I love about Stephen King is he takes people that are rather ordinary people and he puts them in a situation that you can barely comprehend. And we get to see if they rise to the challenge. And that's really my favorite kind of story. My favorite kind of story is either when you go looking for something and meet challenges or when challenges come to you and you're forced to face them. I'm not a big slice of life person. And that was always my problem with the more literary literature, where I'm watching somebody do ordinary things. My rule is I don't read anything about anyone who's less interesting than I am. 
It's <laughs> a good baseline. So, you know, I've worked as a parrot breeder. I've traveled all over Canada, lived in maybe many cabins. Out in the... I've done a lot of really strange things. <laughs> so the idea that somebody would choose to write about, like, yeah, a middle-aged white guy sitting in a... <laughs> Being sad. Yeah, and then, you know, maybe having an affair with a young student because she understands him and has rekindled his interest in life. Hmm. I don't think I ever really need to read that story again. Hmm. Somehow. Hmm. Um, yeah, somehow not. Yeah. Does that answer your question at all? Did no, I actually. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> well, because much like you were saying how authors, when they write speculative fiction, you, you get a better idea of their philosophy and their values and things like that. I think you can tell a lot about a person in terms of how they got into the thing that they're really passionate about. Right. Because it, it's just like, why do you like sports? It's like, I don't know. I played it as a kid. It's like, not interesting. Mm-hmm. But you do speculative fiction as like your profession and as something that started as, as not a profession, yeah. as I'm sure a lot of writing starts out as. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. Like, I love the fact that you guys talk about all the different fandoms because I think that the way into writing for most writers is writing fan fiction. It's just like cosplay used to just being called dressing up we used to call fan fiction writing and (laughs) you would you you would just you know it was like the awesome girl in my math class in grade 11 or grade 12 who wrote a long soap opera story where her friends and duran duran were all characters (sighs) i think a lot of people go into fiction through fan fiction My, my first like stories that i made up in my mind were like doctor who episodes or magnum pi episodes or like I'm really dating myself. And that's kind of the purest form of imagination for me is where you say, oh my God, I love the characters that you came up with. I want them to do these things. And then you write them down. And then I found that I was always inserting myself into the stories. Mm. And then I was realizing that I wanted those stories to stand on their own. So I would take the stories I'd come up with and I realized I'd actually built them around like my avatar as the heroine and from there i could take what i brought from the other story and make it into something different make it into something that resembled it that had a few of the same characteristics but that was mine and then all of a sudden i was actually writing stories that were original stories instead of being fan fiction stories but i think that's really the way a lot of people come to writing And I think it's totally normal that the reason that you're excited about creating is that you're responding to other people's creation. And even now, when I do like marathon sessions of writing, I'll write and write and write and write. The better it's going, the more likely I am to watch a double feature of a movie. And between the movies, I will write and write and write and write. And then after the movie, I'll go out for dinner and I'll write and write and write and write. It's like I need that input as much as I need the output. I just want to say here, what was the first project, the three Nicks? ever worked on together yeah when we were in grade it had to be nine was maybe it? maybe 10 mm. one of those two maybe 10 dragon ball z fan fiction oh yeah Aww. you're not wrong <laughs> didn't get too far but that was that was our first ever project it's awesome and that was within i don't know a week within a week of reading each other or something like that sounds about right <laughs> but yeah like about needing the input to match the output, so to speak. Yeah. Because I feel like when you're doing that that writing fan fiction thing, like when I've done it in the past, I'm not like 
I want to write a lot. I'm just like, I want to make more of this thing that I like. Yes. Yep. Right. And like writing seems to be the simplest way to do that because I know some words. Yep. And I can put those together. And then before you know it, you kind of have an idea of how you write, what you like about your writing and stuff like that. And then yeah. you, you, you might be a writer. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And then the beautiful thing is that if you kind of go the path that I went, you start sending your stories out, you get tons and tons of rejection letters, you get a few people that like your stuff, you learn more about your own process, you learn, most importantly, you learn whether you think you could actually do this god awful, horrible, boring, dull, painstaking thing every day, day in, day out, and then that's, and that's just the fun part. And then comes, you know, the editing and the typesetting and the sending things up and the waiting for replies and just, I mean, going from writing as something that's fun to do to writing as a profession is still something I'm working on. And I'll probably be working on it for the rest of my life, especially with the way that um, the whole marketplace is changing, the whole, definitely the, the actual purveyors of books, distributors, publishers, bookstores, everything is changing. And it's changing really quickly. And it's also allowing the market to drive what it wants to see a bit more. And uh, I think Amazon Analytics is doing a, a really intriguing job on that. You will be able to go onto Amazon and throw out keywords. I'm not saying this is a real book, uh, like, you know, gay porn dinosaur. And mm -hmm. it will come up with a selection of books that have been written on that subject. Mm -hmm. And from that, you know, you can actually drive a section of the market that uh, that has been underrepresented before. <laughs> Don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> Small piece of if advice: you, yeah. do not do not put those search terms into Google, <laughs> unless you want to break into that niche. Oh, did you just do it? <laughs> I'm gonna try Amazon. It might be a bit better. <laughs> I hate to tell you, but there is an entire genre. There's an entire sub-speculative genre of dinosaur porn. I do not write it, not even under a pseudonym, <laughs> but it exists. These are ridiculous. <laughs> it's like Bigfoot romance, you know? I'm just going to read some of the titles here. Oh, you actually okay. did it. This is awesome. All right. All right. Uh, gay dinosaur billionaire adventures with Bigfoot and friends. There you go, Z. <laughs> See, what I like about that is you know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> Butt love and unicorn. <laughs> Not a dinosaur. Game of butts, the pounds of winter. Huh. Becoming less subtle. I would have preferred just game of butts. <laughs> yes. You know what? Let it stand on its own. But if it's a series, you know, <laughs> that's true. You need to need to differentiate it. A billionaire dinosaur forced me gay. All right, these are. are is that is that the same billionaire dinosaur from the first title? <laughs> I'm not sure. It could be a series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you seeing covers with these dinosaur ones? I'm wondering if they're like buff shirtless dinosaurs or something as as a romance co cover trope. Yep. Okay. Okay. On, honestly, Gay Dinosaur Billionaire looks like the most legit of the books that I'm looking at. <laughs> like, it's got a picture of a dinosaur in a suit, like facing out over a city skyline. There's no buff dudes. It just looks like a dinosaur in a suit. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm sorry for the dinosaur tangent. What, what are we doing again? <laughs> We're talking about speculative fiction, and obviously there are many, many forms of it. Yes. 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 Um, Z, I was actually going to ask, have you come to terms with, or in the process of coming to terms with, like, writing being a thing that you do for fun and then also for work? Uh, I mean, 
Hmm. I don't think I can legitimately say that it is something I do for work yet, since it is not something that I am, like, on a regular basis paid to do. But, I mean... If you wait for being paid as an artist to make yourself into an artist, it's it's a slippery slope, I, well, I'm just saying. No, I, I, I definitely <laughs> consider myself... I mean, I consider myself a writer and an artist, but, like, I don't think I have the other half of the equation in place to, like, uh, have to come to terms with that, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to say that I I could treat my writing more like work than I do, but I think that at this point I treat it more like work than I have in the past. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you actually force yourself to do a word count every day? Uh, well, what I usually do is um, I usually write stuff out longhand first mm. for the first draft. So it's, it's usually a page count. Yeah, okay. Bringing speculative fiction back into the mix. How do you think that self-publishing has changed speculative fiction uh, over, say, the last 10, 15 years. Has it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you leave it up to the bigs, then what you get is book after book that's a Katniss Everdeen <laughs> ripoff. <laughs> and that's about it. Uh, what um, Maze Runner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shadow Hunters. Divergent. Yep. Oh, yep. And then, as you know, as uber geeks like you are you're like well that was based on battle royale it didn't exist yet. <laughs> well it was i mean um <laughs> yeah <it was> <laughs> and you know or like multiple ripoffs of twilight there is so much being written that is extraordinary and new and fresh and crazy out of the box can i plug a friend sure, absolutely Do you mind sure so this is book two of zanisi trilogy by kit davin it's a just a beautiful speculative mix of hard science fiction and fantasy. Hmm. And it's funny when you're talking about like how fantasy is not really uh, not a big part of speculative <laughs> fiction anyway, or that or the, the popularity is decreasing. I think one of the reasons is that the lines between science fiction and fantasy are really blurred. And mm-hmm. and you know that starting with like Anne McCaffrey and the Pern books. So you have books that start off as total fantasy set on a distant planet where there's dragons, and then Eventually, you find out that it's a science fiction book about the people that came and bred the dragons from probably Earth. And oh, so the, the, those lines are... Oh, did I just... I'm sorry if I spoiled that for... No, no, that wasn't why. Like, I'm, I'm okay. just like, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Saw that one coming. But uh, so, you know, she, she self-publishes. She has a husband who's a phenomenal artist who does the cover work. As you can probably tell, he's rather... Oh, no. lovely. Yeah. And she has sort of gender non-specific character. Well, she has mm-hmm. characters that change gender. Mm-hmm. She has a very free kind of sexuality represented. And a lot of the major publishers aren't really ready for following what's happening in the world, yeah. let's say. Mm-hmm. Unless it becomes something where they think that it's enough of a buzz built up yeah. about something that they want to look for books like that. But um, there's not a lot of inventiveness on the part of the big publishers. They really do try to find something that will fit nicely into their marketing strategy. The reason that I self-published my Blood and Magic series was because my character ages from 13 to 35 over the course of four books. And that's two different marketing departments. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's young adults and adults. Yeah. I made the mistake of actually leading with that as a pitch. I was taught by, by Leslie Livingston on the last panel I did at, uh, at Astra this year that uh, 
the phrase you have to learn when you talk to agents and publishers is it's a standalone novel with serious potential. <laughs> That's what they want to hear. Perfect. Yeah. So they think they can send you along the right path mm. in marketing. But oh, I see. You have to you have to let them think that they're going to have influence over you. <laughs> <laughs> and then just pray that your book is exciting enough and, and attracts enough readers that you have some say in what you do for your next book. I go to the conventions because it's my best way to meet potential readers and to build a fan base. Um, it's where I meet the people that like to read the kind of things I write. Mm. And I love doing that. If I was with a major publisher, I would still be doing the same thing, but I'd, I'd still be paying my own way. You mentioned conventions. And that was one thing that was interesting to me. A lot of the things that we go to in terms of conventions are like anime conventions, video game conventions. Yeah. They're like broad, but like somewhat well-defined. Yeah. What is that like for speculative fiction? Is there, are there speculative fiction conventions? Oh, yeah. Well, um, CanCon is coming up in October. I'll be there uh we think we're trying to do a Trump book launch there. So, hey, CanCon, if you're listening, we'd like to do a launch. <laughs> we have a big party. Ooh. We'll give you some wine. We'll make it really fun. Um, Every time I hear CanCon, I think of just, it's just Canadian content. Uh, it's just, content. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, CanCon's in Ottawa. It's a speculative Canadian fiction convention. I haven't been there yet, but everybody every year tells me I should go. So I'm... Um, finally going i'm really excited i'm hoping to sit on some panels there too it's the panels that i love and i think the panels are what a lot of the fans come for too so i do a time travel panel where i discuss Ooh. all the different ways we can travel in time from what you lead off the episode with you know that we are going to travel in time whether we want to or not then one day at a time ad infinitum until we die yes <laughs> and you know like we'll do we'll do panels on anything under the sun so any kind of genre we do a lot of panels right now uh last few years i've been doing a lot of panels about i have an idea now what like is it a what is it is it a video game is it a is it a graphic novel is it a, is it a an actual novel is it a series um is it a tv show and then how do we actually go about getting it to the point where it can be transposed into the correct medium uh, I know you're asking. <laughs> so the, I know the question was actually about uh, about about uh, spec fiction at, at conventions. Some are better than others for writers. There are conventions like Fan Expo that used to attract a lot of readers, but since there's no one place that all the books are anymore, so if you are a bookseller, you're mixed in with all the other artists, mm -hmm. and books are books are peculiar, like. People who read books are not necessarily the same people who are buying toys or prints or comic books. We used to have people who would come and walk down the list of authors and just stock up for the year. Oh, wow. So it was, I mean, it was wonderful for us. Mm. It's like, okay, got, I need one of those, I need one of those. Was that, okay, maybe not that one, but this one I'd like. And now there's a few speculative writer associations that actually have tables where they share a table between a bunch of authors, and that seems to work for them. Um and then Ad Astra is my favorite convention of the year. Um, it's it just passed. It's later. I don't. Do you guys go to Ad Astra? Not yet. Not yet. yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful, and it is really heavy. It's a book lovers convention. It really is. The guests are almost all authors, and the panels are really really fun. Hmm. 
one year. I can't remember which year now. But Z and I went <laughs> went to um, SF Contario. SF Contario. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I think that's stopped now. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think so. Stopped. Uh, possibly is starting again or something like that. Oh, that is so typical of conventions, and I love it. <laughs> genre con was gone for a while. I went to the last genre con. Oh yeah. And now I'll be going back. Yep. Yeah, genre con's. Uh, totally revamped and wonderful and looking forward to that sf contario is happening uh, uh november 16th and november 18th this year oh great yeah okay let's um, take a look at that it was the first and on, i think only like book or like literary con that we'd ever been to right like the vibe was completely it was very chill yeah. it was very i remember yeah. go, I remember going into like <laughs> I even hesitate to say dealer's room. <laughs> I want to say author's room. <laughs> really, it was. And we were just kind of like chatted to each person that was in there about their book. Yeah. Which is not something you typically do at the dealer's room at a con. Yeah, and it's it doesn't go down well in Fan Expo in the Artist Alley. Like, I can't you imagine. You can't hear anybody. People are going to push past you. Like, it's just not the right atmosphere for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember Zee nabbed me a free Kurt Vonnegut book. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's so nice. Would he have done it if it hadn't been free? Is it just he'll get you stuff if it's free, but not if it costs? I don't. Anything? I don't know what the story was. I was sitting in a panel, and Z met me there, and he's like, "I got this book free." <laughs> oh, that's so nice. I think it. Didn't, I, you know, yeah, I think I had been in a panel, and somebody announced that there was like a box of free books. Something like Cory Doctorow is giving away free books. I don't even know Cory Doctorow was there. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Somehow there was a box full of free but he books. Dropped off. What he was he just drove by and dropped off a bunch of books, I guess. Uh. In terms of the bigs getting their hands all over your work, mm. in stark contrast to literary criticism of like literature and speculative mm-hmm. genre fiction, uh, turning away from, from books just for a second, of... The top 20 highest grossing films, three are not speculative fiction. Right. And two of those are Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a maybe. <laughs> What's the third? Titanic. Uh, of course. Oh. Yeah. Historical drama. Exactly. Mm. I think it all, it all pretty much went down like that, right? <laughs> but none of them are what you would consider literature, right? <laughs> not a single one. Well, if you've read the, the Fast and the Furious books, they're actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so here's something that that bothered me the whole time during the the research for this podcast. And it's probably because I'm like way out of my depth in terms of not being that into literature in general. I remember having a conversation with Nick Z and it was like, oh, well, speculative fiction is this and genre fiction is this. And I was like, what are those two things? How is that different from like plain literature? Like what? Why are those things different? What is it that makes them different? I think it definitely comes down to what sensibility in the reader you're trying to meet, like what the expectations of the reader are. I really do believe that the reason that I love speculative fiction is that it is allegorical for me. When Stephen King writes about a little girl who starts fires with her mind, or a little bit older girl who, you know, kills all of her classmates in a bloody and fiery prom night um he's writing about like these deep primal fears of young women and becoming sexual and you kind of recognize that at some level and as soon as you start talking about it it feels like it's hitting you over the head and you want to see something else like what's the next trick like what's the next thing you can do to to speculate for me i find that 
a lot of literature is, for me, the stuff that's not speculative fiction that issues any kind of magical realism, that issues any kind of non-real elements. For me, it just isn't enough fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, I have a mother who won't read my work because it doesn't appeal to her because she only likes the real world. So if you're a reader who is made uncomfortable by the abstract or just doesn't enjoy it and wants to read about something that's either more representative of your own experiences or that is representative of other real experiences that often the writer has had or something that's close to what the writer has had, you gravitate towards that kind of literature. Most of the people I know who like or write speculative fiction are always asking questions. They're always trying to find things out. They're always curious. And that kind of curiosity drives both the writing and the reading. It's a constant exploration, trying to find something that you didn't know before. Like it's not enough just to find something out. It's to ask yourself after you found that out, what new questions you have. So that's what I think the difference is. And there's no judgment. I like to think I'm not judging. I'm sure I am, because I, I feel judged by literary critics who believe that as soon as you have an element that's non-natural, suddenly you have broken the rules and what you're doing is no longer permissible. And then there's like exceptions, like Jan Martel writing... Um, um, Life of Pi? Life of Pi. Yeah. Life of Pi is a speculative novel. Mm -hmm. Like, there is no other way to define that than a piece of speculative fiction. It's a piece of magic realism masquerading as a true story. Yeah. Like a story that could actually happen. But it's not. So people will consume it if they're told it's <laughs> not speculative fiction. I mean, some stuff just, just gets, like, plucked, right? <laughs> like, that made me think of The Time Traveler's Wife. Yeah. Quite obviously speculative <laughs> fiction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it got into general fiction at chapters, so everyone's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was just thinking of so many parallels. First of all, I thought of that, like, in the same way that there's, like, the rules and the canon and the hierarchy in literature, there was an art, mm. right? Yes. And then we had the Impressionists. Yep. And the Salon de Refusé. The, the, the Salon would, would not take their pictures because they were too crap. Yes, because they were they were doing a different style, so they had their own salon, the Salon of the Refused, and uh, yeah, we all remember who they are now. <laughs> but the other thing is uh, going back to something that comes up on this podcast a lot is is curative versus transformative fandom, mm. and literature is a lot of like inward looking, like explaining what's here, yeah, right, like maybe articulating feelings or things that are in the world that you maybe didn't notice. You may not have thought of it that way before, but it is it is just looking more closely at what's here, whereas speculative fiction is more transformative. It's literally what if. Right. Or like this, but in space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That actually matches my, my concept too pretty well. I think there's a big difference between observing and comprehending. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I often find that books that are held up as literature are extremely good at observing life. But in terms of actually understanding or parsing or even being able to make conclusions because of what you've observed, um, I find they're weaker on that. 
And I, I guess the idea is that with literature, you're handed these observations and you make your own conclusions. Mm. But if I'm reading something by someone who's brilliant and has a unique or a powerful perspective on something, I'd like a hint of what that perspective is. Usually when I like or dislike a piece of writing on television, it's because I get a sense of the underlying philosophy of the writer. And if that makes me uncomfortable, I know I'm not going to feel safe going on the journey with that person. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff that's considered really great television that I don't like because it's not my taste. I want something that is positively transformative. Some people like things that are negatively transformative. You know, like some people really like shows where a lot of things get killed. Like, <laughs> um, there's just a lot of different takes. Uh, yes! <laughs> I can't deny that I love Game of Thrones. Yeah, well, and I, I love Game of Thrones too, but yeah. I love Game of Thrones for the long arc. I love the fact that yeah. all the things that people complained about in the first few seasons, like all the people who were being treated so miserably and the women being raped and this and that, and it's it's like, yeah, but you don't get the payoff of how the world changes unless you start off that way. And I don't believe that it is not going to give us that payoff. That's true. I don't believe it's going to be like another loss. Ah. Let's hope not. Oh, lost. <laughs> this is, we haven't done a lost episode yet. All the way through. Concussion oh. of G's dreams. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's an outstanding example of how not to let J.J. Abrams pitch anything to you. <laughs> yeah. So there's this plane. It goes down and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, you figure out the rest. <laughs> I know that's how he pitches things. There's blah, blah, blah. Definitely is in the middle <laughs> of it. And you yep. figure out the rest is definitely in. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the way he pitches everything. I'm do the DVD episode. I'm like, there aren't that many episodes left, but I still have a lot of questions. I uh, hope yeah. they can uh, <laughs> get to all of these. Uh, end, end at the end of season five, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then to end it on the note that your teacher said, your teacher claimed they would fail you in English if you did that at the end of a story. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only thing that your teacher said you were not allowed to do in a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that just like way too meta for the rest of us? Is that like actually a, a mark of genius? May, that maybe we just didn't get it. Maybe it's brilliant, but it does remind <laughs> me of a story that I had. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually curious. I'm actually curious as to what you think about this. So uh, yeah, Z and I were in a creative writing class in high school. Oh yeah. And we had every class we do like a little writing prompt where we just write a paragraph or two on a sent based on a sentence. And and she'd read some of them aloud, and they everyone would kind of talk about like oh see what they did there, and so the very first one we got was the classroom was in chaos. Yes. And <laughs> okay, so I had like a jet fighter crashed in there. There were like lions everywhere and something, and like there's war going on and chaos. Right? There's just everything right. you can imagine. And she's like, oh, it must be like a student's like dreaming this or something. I'm like, no, it's happening. <laughs> Yeah. The teacher was like, oh, it's probably because a student a student is daydreaming or something like that. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to not, we're committing to this. This is, this is real. Yeah, exactly. Um, that teacher is the prime it. example of somebody who is perhaps mostly anti-speculative fiction. <laughs> you might be right in times. She would frown upon anybody reading like the Lord of the Rings trilogy for, you know, their <laughs> final end of year book report kind of thing or like right. the Narnia series, anything oh. like that. I don't know what it was, not proper enough, but somehow it just didn't. <laughs> so in fit. grade four, when we were supposed to memorize poems and I picked all of them from The Lord of the Rings, it oh, wasn't going down well. No, 
No. Not so much? Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me ask you this. Do you prefer to say speculative fiction as opposed to science fiction or horror or fantasy or whatever? Or a genre fiction or... Yeah. I really do choose the term based on what I think the person I'm talking to will like and understand. Okay. I don't really have a lot of problems mixing up science fiction and fantasy elements and like a lot of my stuff crosses genres anyway. Mm-hmm. So when I actually choose a label for it, I'm trying and I'm trying to get better at this to actually choose something that will describe the book and the tone as much as possible. So the Blood and Magic series, you could call them horror books. I tend to call them occult thrillers. Okay. Just because that gives you a little more of the meat of the kind of storytelling. And I don't do a lot of blood and gore, although I do more than I think I do. When I, <laughs> when I talk to readers, it's like, yeah, I did electrocute that child. And I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. It just slipped out. Ah! It did. I'm so sorry. Um, please forgive me. No, I'm not going to rewrite it. I mean, I struggle with labels to begin with. I struggle with marketing myself. Mm-hmm. Undead Redhead is literally a zombie satire. It's like a satire of zombie books almost. But it's not Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. It's it's kind of sending up the way that people are so invested in zombies the way they are that that I mean zombies are the new Nazis, right? They're the new Russians. Oh, they're the dang, they're the things right. they're the things that we can kill with impunity, right? They're the best other we have right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to write a book where the zombie was the nicest person in the book and there was only one of her and there was no genetic experiment gone wrong. There was no umbrella core. There was no meteorite from outer space. I wanted to actually dig back down into the the place where zombies came from and where they started off before George Romero Mm. changed the whole landscape for us. And that's another thing about genre that gives genre a bad rap is the idea that you're always borrowing conventions from other people like when somebody writes a vampire novel then in a way it is actually a kind of fan fiction unless they really do have a new take on it when tolkien wrote the lord of the rings and the hobbit all of a sudden our concepts of what an orc was what a dwarf is what a Hmm. elf Hmm. is they got kind of calcified And instead of people even looking at the way that those creatures had been seen traditionally in literature or in in myth and legend, Tolkien's viewpoint became everybody's viewpoint. And you could be criticized if you strayed from his conception of what dwarves or elves or orcs were. And then Dungeons and Dragons did a lot of that too. Like It's always amused me that uh, the elves in Dungeons and Dragons are so different from the elves in Tolkien. Yeah, yeah. You'd never guess that they were the same creature if they didn't have the same name. But it's just as calcified for some people that those are what elves are. Mm. But for me, the glory and the excitement of speculative fiction is not writing somebody else's monster. It's writing your own monster. It's writing your own... Like, in my series, the idea is that when you do magic, most people don't have any innate magical talent. Some people will never be able to get magic working. Some people have... A skill level it's like you know you can play the violin mm-hmm. and if you work really hard at it and you figure you take lessons you can do that and then some people are just 
born with the innate ability and they're super, super rare. And they can do things that other people can't just by thinking about them. But everybody has this underlying restriction that if you do really big magic, it requires blood. Um... So there's an element of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to sacrifice other people to get what you want? Are you willing to hurt people or hurt yourself to get what you want? So my rules of magic actually force a lot of the conflict in the in the book because of how my rules work. Okay. And I enjoy that in speculative fiction. Somebody actually goes that way. So much like psychology going on there. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's where speculative fiction is really strong. Like reading somebody writing about an alcoholic and the problems that this one alcoholic goes through. I might actually understand it less by the end because I'm reading a single experience and if there's no attempt made to figure out what the universal corollary of that person's experience are, it doesn't necessarily entice me. It doesn't involve me as much if I'm reading about a single person's experiences that don't tell me anything about humanity or the way the world works. I want something bigger at stake. Using the example of an alcoholic, <laughs> like, you know, opening a book, you you are aware of what an alcoholic is and you are aware of your relationship to that word. Yeah. Whether you had a parent who was or you knew nobody who was or you are or whatever. Right. So once you see that that's what the story is, you already know what your relationship is to that kind of person. But speculative fiction-wise, you're like, kind of subverting that because you don't know what kind of person this yeah. is because it's a thing that you've never heard of. Yeah, exactly. And people are far more complex than single labels. And mm. speculative fiction allows you to go at things from a lot of different angles. And if you're telling a compelling story, you can get people to understand things they would not have chosen to read about. Yeah. <laughs> there was a really good quote I found about that. There was an IO9 article called Why Speculative Fiction is the Coolest Genre of Them All. And it wasn't a very long article. Nice! <laughs> but there was this, this nice little quote inside it. The term speculative fiction holds a special place in my heart because it is able to accommodate all the other genres under its umbrella. What I mean by this is that fiction written under it can include elements from romance, mystery, horror, etc. There's also another advantage to such a vague term as speculative fiction. The only expectation one comes into reading it is that anything can happen. Take horror, for example. Mm. When you read a short story that's classified as horror... You're always preparing yourself for the horror element to pop up. Compare this to reading a story simply labeled as speculative fiction, where you don't know whether it'll tickle your sense of wonder or frighten you or both. While there's something to be said about the technical craft of writing a horror story, sometimes it's better to not know that it's a horror piece in the first place for it to have greater impact. Right. That tells you right there why um, uh, Turn of the Screw was such a successful novel, hmm. because... No matter what your expectation is, you're not entirely certain if it's been met. You don't know if it's a ghost story. You don't know if it's a woman who's just nuts. Mm -hmm. You don't even really know if people have actually died or if it's all in our head. Yeah. Did uh, any of you read um, is the yellow the yellow wallpaper? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's one of just like the finest short stories of all time. Period. It's got so much atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And it, it gets you where you live. Like, I recently did a performance where 
it was 13 horror plays done in one evening. Mm -hmm. So we all had like 10 minutes to do a play. (laughs) So mine was seven and a half minutes long. And what I wanted to do was to scare the actual audience members, like to make them feel like they were in danger, not just that they were scared about what was happening on stage. So my character actually comes out as if I'm just working for the theater. I actually volunteered as an usher for the play (laughs) so that people would get the impression that I was working there. And then I just tell them that there's a delay and I'm going to keep them company. And and eventually I work my way around to telling them that I'm actually here to distract them because I poisoned one of them and they don't know which one of them it is. (laughs) And they don't know if they really should be scared or for themselves or maybe for the person that they love who's sitting next to them. And so it's like, it was that kind of taking horror, but taking it in a way that you didn't even know it was a horror story. You didn't even know what Mm -hmm. I was going to do. And uh, it was very effective. I enjoyed that mightily. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not usually the person who wants to psych (laughs) people out, but... That was, that, oh, that's good. Yeah. Hmm. It was satisfying, though. That's the difference, too. Like, sometimes I think that literature errs on the side of not resolving things. My latest blog post was actually about climaxes. And it sounds like I'm taking us back into the porn thing. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. But ending stories is so important. And I don't like the way that some stories want to end before they're finished as if you're supposed to be so excited about what you've read up to this point that you're going to want to keep imagining things afterwards Hmm. and i find that a little presumptuous on the part of the author like i'm much more in keeping with the william shakespeare the idea that you have a denouement you don't just get the you know like we do in movies now where we have like the big car crash People stumble out and <laughs> credits roll. I want to sit with the characters longer. I want to see what happens afterwards. Like, I just want like five minutes, just five minutes, yeah. five minutes to like, let me have it settle. And when you do that, it's actually more memorable. Like you actually have a chance to, to reflect on the conclusion instead of it just being like, yeah, I remember there was a big fight. Mm. Yeah, that's that's the takeaway. I think that literature tends to end before the climax and speculative fiction tends to take you right through to like even if they take you to a twist ending, they take you to a twist that actually is supposed to satisfy you. I don't know as much about weird fiction as I wish I did. I don't know if you guys are reading any weird fiction. Weird fiction is it like like capital W weird. Yeah, oh. it's a new subgenre of speculative fiction. Not a thing that I know about. Z, any? Uh... I don't really know much about it. I want to read more stuff that's actually labeled weird fiction. I have a very strong gut feeling that Twin Peaks would probably fall into that. Probably, yeah. Yeah, so I think you're right. some familiarity there. So probably like maybe anything David Lynch did, except perhaps Dune, yeah. which was weird on other levels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You mentioned weird fiction, and I was looking up the authors. Oh, cool! On Wikipedia, and I saw Junji Ito shows up in that list, who I know as making a graphic novel series, Uzumaki. Okay. Uh, which is about this really weird town. I think it's an anthology of horror stories, and one of them is this person who's obsessed with spirals. 
until he himself becomes a spiral and it's like <laughs> really no it's like it's creepy and dark and disturbing there's also one about a child who like ages in a peculiar way where she has layers and at one point her mother like wants her to de-age or they get in a car accident and she finds out you can peel the layers off to find younger and younger uh, versions of herself oh, right knowing that that is an author of weird fiction you got a much better i now have a much better perspective on because i have not seen any twin peaks yet well, I'd say that, like, even Spirited Away, to some extent, I think that probably if, if you have more of a, a sense of Japanese storytelling, it might seem less weird than it does to a, a Western audience. But that dreamlike quality mm-hmm. in Spirited Away, I always kind of think of as maybe verging on the weird fiction. I do have, uh, for the listener, a brief definition of weird fiction. Cool. By H.P. Lovecraft. Ooh. Ooh. The true weird tale has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or sheeted form clanking chains according to rule. A certain atmosphere of breathlessness and unexplainable dread of outer unknown forces must be present. And there must be a hint Mm. expressed with a seriousness and portentousness becoming its subject of that most terrible conception of the human brain. A malign and particular suspension or defeat of those fixed laws of nature, which are our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that would be Twin Peaks. It's like that something's not right. Yeah, Twin Peaks has it. Because, <laughs> like, even though there's a murder mystery, there's the greater mystery of, like, what? Yeah. Yeah, or welcome what? to Night Vale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is this really happening? Like, is, is, is all the stuff that's happening, is it... Is it only happening in this place? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, Lovecraft is a great example of that, I guess, because the some of that uh, Lovecraft still scares me, and nothing really scares me anymore. That idea that something is lurking just on the other side oh. of a thin membrane that could drive you mad—that's yeah, it's kind of scary. <laughs> but I, I mean, I wonder. Like, there's people who do like to feel more extreme emotions. Mm-hmm. And not just serial killers who have low affect and need that extreme stimulation. Like just, you know, people like me, who's not a serial killer, who just likes to see things go to an extreme. I think that speculative fiction lends itself so much more to plumbing the the outer edges and the limits of society and, and ideas and the new and the scary. I have a model I like to use for knowledge and awareness you guys must have done that uh, filter paper test where you stick the filter paper on top of the the jar and you put a drop of ink in the middle of it and then you put a drop of water on the ink and the water spreads out and it takes the ink with it at a slower rate so you get an increasing circle of water Mm. and then flowing behind it is that circle of ink so that's what i've always thought of knowledge and awareness so the greater your knowledge the greater proportionally than that is your awareness so you become aware of more things that you don't know so in a very real way the more knowledge you have the more you understand that you you still haven't learned and if you want to stay safe you keep those things pretty small like you keep your knowledge small and you keep your awareness small but if you actually are willing to see where the limits are to drop that water into the middle of your ink you can really discover just how vast the sea of knowledge is i should write a story about that (laughs) (laughs) i was actually going to give you if you haven't heard of it a recommendation based on a previous episode that we did are you aware of the scp foundation oh hey 
Maybe not. Okay. I know the SCA. <laughs> They're unaffiliated as far as I know. <laughs> SCP, huh? The SCP Foundation. SCP stands for Secure, Contain, Protect. Are they preppers? They're not preppers. Okay, that's good. It's a collaborative writing project. And Neat. it's like, there's, I don't think there's any of it published. I think it's just all online. Mm-hmm. But people are writing entries in like government files about things that we found that like should not be or are a threat to humanity. Cool. There's hundreds of these. Wow. This is cool. I'm just looking. Um, the first one I see here is all instances of SCP-2338 lack noses, ears, and mouths. Despite this, subjects show an unhindered capacity to smell, hear, and taste. Hmm. <laughs> if that sort of Creepy. thing appeals to you, you will have a lot of fun with that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, <for> sure. <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm one of those people who watch the X-Files and just wish they would have gone a little farther. <laughs> this might scratch the itch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Like the Ikea that's interdimensional or something, it, it traps everybody who goes inside of it. So it has like a, uh, a a separate society living within this Ikea. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Is the monkey with the with the Berber coat there? Mm-hmm. There was like a, it was in, in a Toronto Ikea. Some woman had. Oh, uh, oh. Had, yes. Yeah, just, yeah. So um, I'm sure that's where she and he are oh, living. Probably. They, they, they <laughs> probably sought refuge inside the Ikea. <laughs> If you're in that society, do you get to live on like lingonberries and and like meatballs? Because I could, you would, you would I could have totally to, yeah. go for that. <laughs> that sounds sounds like paradise. It sounds like heaven. <laughs> There's ones that sound completely innocuous and like jokes, but the longer it goes on, the more like unsettling it becomes. Right. Like the, the toaster. Toaster. Yes, the toaster, who. Anyone who comes into contact with the toaster can only refer to the toaster in the first person. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's just bananas. It's fun because, like, I love I love language and I love playing with it. Like, I have a character in a book that I'm writing who is like progressively decompensating and going a little crazier. She's just having a breakdown through the Mm -hmm. book, and she's the main character. And she starts losing words, and then she starts actually shuffling words. So she starts talking about elephants instead of elevators and like things like that. Like words get replaced in her vocabulary to the point where she's absolutely incomprehensible. Except if you've been following her all the way through the book, you've been on that trip with her. Like you're decompensated the same way. Hopefully, it's hard book to write. I'm still working on it, but I love stuff like that. Yeah, sounds worth it. It's funny that. There's a lot of work that is very much speculative fiction, but that because of the circumstances of its publishing or how it's been received, it kind of gets the nod as being a real book instead of being speculative. And that's something that I think spec authors are fighting against is the idea that somehow we're not writing real books. That if you actually create something, if you create a world and then populate it, or you create a new psychology and play with it or if you if you have people blow things up with their brains like it's it's all just superheroes and superheroes are silly and you should grow out of those and and there's so much more to it and i really actually hope that superhero movies start getting a little smarter too because the spec fiction reading population especially if they've 
delved into the Japanese stuff. Like they have a much more sophisticated mm-hmm. storytelling expectation than somebody who just reads Superman comics. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like I want to see if any of that comes out in other media because it's there. Like you guys just interviewed um, Justice Stone. Yeah. So, I mean, light novels, and uh, I've heard him talk a bit about the development of light novels into anime, into movies, into TV series. And you see um, ideas being put through the ringer, like they're tested, they're held up in front of the fans, and the fans tell you whether or not they like where it's going. And the fans often get really excited about characters, and that's not necessarily what literature is trying to do like literature is trying to tell you a discrete story there aren't many series in literature and i don't know if that's just because the author moves on to other things or if as soon as something is the least bit formulaic it's no longer literature <laughs> like that could very well be what it is i gotta ask something here Uh-oh. <laughs> talking about speculative fiction and all the references that we've made throughout the discussion it's been a pretty broad swath from sort of maybe pure, more pure science fiction stuff with uh, Asimov to uh, weird stuff with Lovecraft, a little bit of mystery here and there. As a genre title, as an umbrella term, mm. how useful do you think speculative fiction is for just like in general conversation? Like, have you ever encountered somebody who says, oh, I really love speculative fiction? And then you like give them the series that's maybe mostly a mystery, and they're like, "That was terrible. There was there wasn't any any dragon or magic sword in there at all." <laughs> like, have there ever been crossed wires like that? I'd say because it's kind of a catch-all, I've found it very useful, and because there's a lot of stigma when you say genre, mm-hmm. that's true. It does really seem. And maybe this is especially in Canada, but it really does seem like there's good books, literature, and genre fiction. And like, never the two shall meet. But speculative fiction, it's an insidious term. Like, we can slip into people's bookshelves (laughs) by saying that we're speculative fiction in a way that we might not be able to if we just said, I'm science fiction. (laughs) And it also allows um, so much of the crossover between genres that we're seeing. And like most of the most exciting writing I'm seeing now is rather indefinable in those old terms. Like you could call it science fiction, but you're also going to have to call it fantasy, horror, weird. Yeah. Like you're going to have to give it like 12 different tags, (laughs) which works really well for Amazon SEO apparently. (laughs) But um, (laughs) But just as as a short form, being able to say I write speculative fiction, and then people if people ask me that, I say, well, I always have elements in my fiction that are not traditionally specifically real. Mm-hmm. I deal with the abstract, I deal with the supernatural, and I love having those elements in my work. And you won't find very many of my stories that don't have some element of a speculative component to them. So for me, it's an extremely useful umbrella term. Uh, and I, I am really embrace it fully. Okay. Does that sort of answer the... Yeah, I mean, just how we keep bouncing back and forth between, you know, good books, i.e. literature, and every, everything else. I know, and I try so hard but not like, to. But, like, literature itself <laughs> is kind of a weird umbrella term, really, because... Yeah. Sure, they all sort of follow kind of a similar mold. I would definitely agree with you that they're more observational 
then conclusive about most things, whether that's the way that they end sometimes or just what they have to say. Yeah. But like, it seems that because they're both fairly umbrella-ish terms, but there's such a weirdly nebulous but also kind of clear idea of what literature is. I was just wondering if maybe yeah. there's kind of a clear yeah. idea of what speculative fiction is. I guess it's fiction that asks what if some element of the world was slightly different yeah, or very different. How would that work? Yeah, which I guess is the opposite of observational. Yeah. It's really starting with the author mm -hmm. as a subjective viewer of the world, as somebody who's not just asking what they see, but asking how it affects them and how things might affect them if they were slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I was actually at a, a reading not long ago. It was a joint project of Iguana Books and I think U of T. Okay. And there were some speakers from various small presses in Canada. And I've had a, a hell of a time getting published in Canada. Like, there's just not much of a market for the kind of work I write. Mm. And the stuff that's genre that seems to be appreciated or published, there's only so many presses that publish anything but literary fiction. Mm -hmm. And the ones that do are so small that their tastes are very specific. So if you happen to be writing something that appeals to them, that's great. If you don't, you have to look outside the country. So that's one of the reasons it's it's always been very hard to understand the obsession in Canada with it's not just literary fiction though it's it's non-commercial fiction it's and and by saying non-commercial I mean stuff that will never sell to a mass audience. Mm -hmm. I think that Canada in particular needs to think more about the idea that you can only do art if you can afford to do art and if you sell a bunch of James Patterson books, you have the opportunity to publish a lot of literature. If you don't sell any James Patterson books, you have to scrape and scrimge and get grants. Like we, we don't have a, an industry that, that is predicated on the notion that you should publish the books that people want to read. Mm -hmm. You publish the books that people are going to laud. And that's fine, but I see a lot of great writers not being able to be published in Canada because we don't have an industry that is looking outside of, of literature and mystery. Mm -hmm. We do have a great mystery industry, but that's really the only other genre that gets love in Canada. Mm -hmm. I've always been fond of the 99% rule. No, sorry, the ninety percent rule, the theater sturgeon's ninety percent uh, rule, that like ninety percent of everything is crap. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. And like another nine percent is questionable. <laughs> but what the takeaway for that for me always was was that not only is ninety nine percent of everything probably not going to appeal to you that much, but that one percent is going to be exactly what you're looking for. And any author who can attract one percent of the market is going to do just fine. If you have 1% of the money that um, J.K. Rowling made last <laughs> year, you can live for your entire <laughs> life in a state of luxury that most of us can only dream of. But also, your 99% and your 1% are going to be different from everybody else's. Mm. So there's nothing that says that all forms of writing aren't going to appeal to someone. 
And speculative fiction appeals to a very specific mindset. I think it appeals to people who are asking questions. Most people I know who read speculative fiction also read a lot of nonfiction, especially in like archaeology and astronomy and science. They have an interest in music. I write because I have a screwed up brain that loves collecting information. <laughs> and the only thing in the world I could ever do would be like be a very unsuccessful Jeopardy uh. candidate <laughs> mm-hmm. or write books. Like that's the only way I can actually use what I know. Otherwise, it all goes to waste. And I attract readers who like their information to come at them from a lot of different places. And I have what I call the three-legged stool theory of human existence, of human development. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I try to work towards and with my characters and with my books as well, that as a human being, you kind of have your physical and your emotional and your mental. And those are three like legs of the stool that you can choose to develop you can choose to work on only your physical and then you end up like as a muscle-bound guy with like a teeny but if you keep all those if you keep all those this guess it's kind of like a, a greek ideal if you keep all those things even then you can build the height of the stool so that you can you know have a nice place to sit at a high top table <laughs> and then the the seat of the stool is your spiritual component so you need that to kind of have a place to rest like you need a place to stand or sit and and you need the balance that's provided by your your physical and your emotional and your mental development but the spirituality is what holds it all together so i mean i'm not a religious person at all and i'm not really even a spiritual person but i have a very strong ethical sense of what i want to be to the world what i want to help the world be so all those things go into my stories so i you know i think about a lot of things that i want to communicate when i write and I don't want to feel limited. I don't want to feel limited at all. Like whether it's I have a place that's in northern Manitoba where you can walk into a forest and walk out again thinking you've actually gone straight through it and nobody ever, ever gets through that forest. You know, I come up with that and I don't even know what it means. So I have to put people into it to find <laughs> out what happens to them. I get to experiment. I get to perform experiments on virtual people. Mm-hmm. And I get to go to conventions and I get to meet readers and I get to find out how those ideas have played out in the real world as well, like what they've sparked and kindled in other people. And I get a lot out of doing that with speculative fiction. I don't think I get nearly as much out of doing it with some of my stuff that stays closer to reality. And uh, I'm, I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> I mean, the writer's the writer's first tool, I have to imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love coffee. Yeah. Mm. I do understand, T, that you have found an apropos spotlight for this episode? <laughs> I might have found an apropos spotlight for this episode. Spotlight. Mm. The spotlight, which is our chance to highlight something cool related to the topic. Mm. Uh, this week, it is the Speculative Literature Foundation, specifically the Speculative Literature Foundation grants, which you can find at speculativeliterature.org slash grants. Super straightforward. The foundation currently offers four grants, the Older Writers Grant, the Travel Grant, the Working Class Writers Grant, and the Diverse... It's spelled Diversite, but it doesn't have an accent to go, so I'm not sure. Diversite? <laughs> like some yeah, sort I of guess. element, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, the Diversite Writers slash Worlds Grant. 
Uh, all of the grants are free to apply and are designed as gateway grants with easy and straightforward applications that should be quick to complete. Ooh. Their goal is to both serve the community directly uh, and also encourage genre writers to explore the wide variety of grants, awards, and residencies available in the larger writing community. Cool. If you want to check that out, again, it is speculativeliterature.org slash grants. That is straightforward enough that I don't need to spell it out. <laughs> it's not like a phanthropological or anything like that. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome jen where can people find you on the internet you can find me at uh, jenfrankel.com there was a broadway star who did not get that before i <laughs> grabbed it from her she was in spam a lot though so i love cool is that? Uh... um so jenfrankel.com my books are available on amazon.com amazon.ca you can find me at conventions quite frequently and you can find me i've got a podcast of my own it's called jen frankel reads random shit and i explore different forms of writing with examples of my own work and so and i'm moving into the next season i'm actually going to be using examples of other people's work as well so just talk about uh different kinds of things you might want to write like poetry or you know obsessive poetry or ah. those are really fun they go well with scotch and that's something we <laughs> do at conventions we drink scotch and write obsessive poetry yeah, yeah so that's where you can find me <laughs> and often uh i shouldn't really say this but at the only cafe in toronto where you can write all day and into the night Ooh. yeah that's good oh. <laughs> and drink coffee of course and if you've listened to all of jen's podcasts and are still wanting more you can head on over to phantopological.com where you can find all of our 90-some episodes, I want to say now. <laughs> Get there. We're rolling on to 100. Hey! Or in the uh, in the podcatcher of your choice. We'll be there. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review and uh, hit the subscribe button so you get a brand new episode every single Friday. Now, this podcast is Phantopological, but the three of us are the next cast and can be found all over the internet at the next cast. Just Google it. You'll find us. We're probably on the platform that you like. We're there. <laughs> and then I got to throw over to T to talk about the race. Hey, you mentioned the race against yeah. time. So how about I tell you something about that? <laughs> the race against time, uh, now in its fourth year, is our annual charity video gaming marathon where specifically <gasps> we work our way through Chrono Trigger, the greatest game of all time, to kind of do a thing that the game does in real life. In the game, you are trying to change the future and have a world without Lavos, which is this big evil monster that destroys the world. And in our reality, we want to change the future of Alzheimer's. And in both situations, it like maybe it'll impact the characters in Chrono Trigger. It doesn't. <laughs> maybe we will encounter Alzheimer's in our life. Uh, who knows? But we want to try to make a future that doesn't have it. If you want to check that out, you can go to either raceagainsttime.io or twitch.tv slash raceagainsttime, August 11th and 12th. And if you want to donate right now, you can go to raceagainsttime.io slash donate. All the proceeds go directly to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. If that's not your, your cup of tea, you can also buy a shirt. Go to shop.thenextcast.com. And we have some Race Against Time shirts up there. And again, all the proceeds go directly to the Alzheimer's. Well, the proceeds go to us, which we then put towards the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. Because mm -hmm. it's less direct there. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. But uh, speaking of being direct... You can also, if you're listening to this as a podcast, first off, thank you very much, but you can also be tuning in to hear us recording it live on Monday nights. That's right, over on twitch.tv slash thenextcast, you too can join us in the chat 
and see our uh, lovely faces, see our guests' lovely faces, and hear our lovely voices live. And why, you might be wondering, would you want to do something like that? Well, as I mentioned, there's that that chat. You can interact with us while we're recording the episode via that chat. Uh, you can have conversations amongst yourselves, perhaps. A show within a show. Who knows? Could happen. You can ask us to play Fortnite. You could. You could ask us to play Fortnite. And, we're not uh, going to, but you can ask. I, I mean, yeah. I want to say at uh, extreme risk to us, uh, you can ask anything and we might accept <laughs> or decline. But anyway, what you can also do while you're in that chat, watching us recording these episodes live, Mondays, twitch.tv slash the next cast is participate in the famous last words. Famous last words. Ooh, it took us a while, but we made it there. You <laughs> took us there. <laughs> I had to ask, what if I took a little bit longer this time? I've been waiting all episode. Oh, good, me too. Oh. Next week, we will be talking about the fandom around Yuri on Ice, a popular anime series which previously only had one season, but now is going to have a movie and a second season. So who the heck knows? Two seasons and a movie. Two seasons and a movie, yes. Sure. And so the question is, what are your famous last words around Yuri on Ice fandom? can be a statement it can be a question either way we're gonna have to look into it i just wonder if tanya harding will be participating <laughs> she's a maybe i think <laughs> she never got to do ice capades so yuri on ice is the next best thing i think no that's true it'd be really fascinating if they drew her, her into one of the backgrounds yeah spoiler season two they just used her <laughs> skating as like ah. the reference footage for the, the skating really? shots <laughs> Season two is just I, Tanya, ah! but cut up into episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Having seen it, was its integration with social media any part of people being fans of it? That's cool. Because, like, they use Instagram quite a bit on that show. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I don't know for sure. I assume they actually made actual Instagram accounts for the characters, but no, we'll see. All right. I was going to ask, what is it about Yuri on Ice that is so influential, given that it's one short season that people did not think was even going to get a movie, let alone a second season? What is it about Yuri on Ice that sets itself apart from the dozens of other anime that, you know, just don't don't survive? Mm-hmm. It can't just be a romantic relationship between male characters. That can't be the only part. There's lots of that. Yeah, it can't be ice skating because... Like, because it's ice skating. Yeah. No, we, we did an episode yeah. on figure skating, and I was surprised how much there was to it. <laughs> but I, I still want to know, like, what is it that got people in? It's very short, and a lot of the audio and skating routines are the same. What is it that got people in? I want to know. All right. I'm wondering, I'm burning with the question, who is the oldest fan inspired by Yuri on Ice to get into figure skating? Nice. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping, hoping that it doesn't just turn out to be like a nine-year-old or something. I'm, I'm really hoping it's somebody you know, like thirty, forty, fifty. Well, I haven't watched it, so there's still a chance that it'll be me. Yes. Please report back <laughs> as to whether after you watch it, you take up figure skating. The only reason I want to do it is like I want to know how to spell sow cow. 
It's the only reason I want to go into figure skating. Is there an L in there? I don't remember. Isn't it like S-O-W-C-H-O-W? No, 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 spoil it. It's like, make... Don't worry, it's not. I gotta have that lesson where you learn to fall down before they tell me that. Like, it's it's like your Masonic ritual initiation. Oh, that's how it's spelled. Okay. Oh, boy. I forgot. All right, nothing that remains to say. Jen, thank you again for joining us on the show. It was wonderful to have you. Mm-hmm. It has been an absolute delight to be here with you guys. It's been so much fun. Oh, same here. Thanks. That's all that remains, speaking of large vocabularies and being well-read. Until next time, we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. is coming to you from the future for that is where you and i are going to spend the rest of our lives today we're talking about fans of speculative fiction speculative fiction holy crap <laughs> speculative <laughs> fiction eh that's right surprise this is actually one, a science one, podcast one, one more one more speculative fiction there we go hey <laughs> <laughs> I, I like speculative fission because you know then we could try to achieve speculative cold fission for the first time right on it would be a lot cleaner than what we're using now yeah i, w- I was thinking about speculative fishing like, <laughs> i don't, I don't know fishing speculative fishing <laughs> i mean it's genre defying okay it's slightly oxymoronic it's like, that. It's like will there be fish today <laughs> speculate <laughs> Uh, the chat is in agreement. All fishing is speculative. <laughs> Thank you, chat. How did he make that joke first? Um, <laughs> all right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phanthropological. My name is Nick G, and today we're going to be exploring the world.